0: Hello, and welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, joined, as always, by my friend Richard Epstein. Richard, are you socially distant?
1: I'm socially distant, and I'm afraid, you know, the psychological toll of being in constant contact with my wife and nobody else, it gets to you after a while. But, you know, fortunately, we do have some degree of interconnectivity, and the mere fact that I can talk to you by way of internet, actually boosts my spirits just a little bit, Adam. But this is no reflection on you. It's a reflection of the bad overall social situation, which I regard in many ways as one of the worst sort of social panics in the history of the world.
0: Well, I'm going to spend the next few minutes making you more and more depressed. But before we get to that, I do want to point out, Richard is keeping busy doing other things. So am I. Tomorrow, he's on a teleforum with the Federalist Society talking about the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, I just recorded a podcast the other day with one of Richard's colleagues at Chicago, Will Bode, um, for uh, the, the program I run at George Mason, the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. We did a podcast on uh, agency adjudication and the courts. But, of course, the big issue, the biggest issue in the world, and the one we're going to focus on today here, is the ongoing development of both the coronavirus outbreak and the various public and private responses to that outbreak. Now, Richard, you made a lot of waves a week ago today. We're recording this on March 23rd, the Monday. You made a lot of waves a week ago, March 16th, where you uh, published a piece in Hoover's Defining Ideas site titled Coronavirus Perspective. And I think it's fair to say that you took a much more skeptical view of both the outbreak and the response that we're accustomed to in debate. Why don't you describe what you wrote?
1: Okay, I'll describe what I wrote. Um, Essentially what happens is the uh, current debate is treating this as though it's the most massive outbreak in the history of the world. Um, But my own view about these things is if you look at the standard models, what they do is they assume a very slow buildup. And then you get this exponential stuff that simply does not change until there was a New York Times model that I quoted. In the middle of July, you're getting 10 million cases a day for a period of maybe two weeks, which is going to result in a million people dead if we do nothing. And then if we do something, all they say it will do is to, quote, flatten the curve. And so maybe you could reduce these relevant numbers to twice that. Um, The thing that is so clearly wrong about these perspectives, no matter how influential they turn out to be, is we've had environmental situations and virus situations like this since the beginning of time. We actually had, though nobody remembers, a situation with the so-called H1N1 virus uh, from April 2009 to 2010, which resulted in maybe between 15 and 20,000 deaths. Nobody quite knows how to do all these attributions and so forth. It lasted about a year and it disappeared. And at the beginning, of course, it was exactly the same thing as here. We had a new untested virus. It caused some deaths. We had no available vaccine, and everybody was in a tizzy about what it is that you should do. And it turns out we didn't do anything collectively, let alone on the magnitude now. The virus went up, then it went down, and it disappeared with the death levels that I'm talking about. If you looked at the last influenza infection that took place in um, uh, the fall from October to March of this year, uh, much higher totals of deaths, infections, and so forth. And it resulted probably between 22 and 55,000 deaths. Right now, the world death total is about 15,000. And is it going up? Yes. How fast it's going up is, of course, the huge, great debate. And the key figure in this debate has been the Italian situation, uh, which has basically over a third of the current deaths. Uh, there was a recent publication in, of all places, the Jerusalem Post, which indicated that the extreme death rate amongst the older population, 85% of the deaths in Italy have been from people over 70, resulted from essentially a triage decision not to use the available respirators on people who are over 70 years old. Uh, So in other places like Germany, where it turns out it was a much younger population, the number of deaths that you get are sort of about 100 and 150. Uh, There are today roughly, oh, say 13,000 of the 15 plus thousand deaths have taken in place in four countries, uh, China, which seems to be leveling off, although its numbers are dubious, I ran the same thing. Italy, I haven't seen a report on Italy for two days now in terms of the number of deaths, so that leads me to believe that they're certainly higher than the 5,500 5, or so that you see. Uh, but the question is, is the rate going up more or less rapidly? My view is it will start to peak and go down just the way in which the Chinese thing in one started to go down about five weeks after it started. So I try to run these projections, I'd made a stupid kind of mistake and I'll now is I thought that the total number of world deaths would be, say, about 20,000. If you guess the United States, uh, um, or rather 50,000, if you guess the United States at, say, 5% of that, uh, that would be about 2,500, 3,000. I said 500, that was clearly wrong. Uh, my Some learned friends of mine whom I really trust do similar analysis. They come up with higher totals. None of them have a higher estimate over 150,000 at the very top, median at 50. Um, 50 50,000 is the kind of number that you're looking about for the United States. I think that's high. Um, My guess is that the number would probably be by the time all is said and done, will be about 10,000 deaths or so. I think this is terrible, but I think the alternative is worse. And what you see going on here is massive quarantines in places like Cook County, where there have been four deaths, San Diego, where there's been one death. Uh, It turns out that over half the deaths in the United States are in two hot spots, the New York metropolitan area, and Seattle, and in Seattle, a very large portions of those deaths have been related to a single nursing home facility where people died in the facility, and doubtless, before they uh, knew they were sick, spread it to their relatives who came to visit them and so forth. So I regard this as a colossal overreaction, which stems from the fact that people do not believe that the way in which people will behave And the way in which the viruses will actually modify themselves um, will lead to this thing peaking as every other epidemic we've ever had in the history of the world. So uh, the current projections by the uh, governor of Illinois, Jay Pritzker, J.B. Pritzker, you know, he says there's going to be tens of thousands of lives saved by this quarantine off a base of four. I can't even understand how he gets the multiplier out of all these notions. In the last three or four days, I think the number has gone up, of deaths about one a day in Cook County. And we're putting this all-purpose alert into place. Uh, the devastation on the stock market, the number of small businesses that have been ruined, the number of lives that have been wrecked, what people need to do if they're old, like me, in this is so self-quarantined until the worst is past. Other people should try to go about their lives. You should reopen restaurants, reopen movie theaters, reopen small businesses, reopen gyms. And what these places will do is they will ration the way in which people come into them. If they think that the customers are going to be fearful, they will be more fearful than they should be because of the entire consensus of the establishment starting from Tony Fauci on down is this thing is a doomsday scenario. Public health officials wear uniforms. They love to expand their own situation. But I think that the economic damage that we have done is so very, very fatal. And I attribute it not to President Trump, who's just ineffectual, uh, but to governors who are basically loving their military power putting these quarantines in place left, right, and center, uh, so that we've already lost over a third of the value of the stock market in the last week or half or so, and it will continue to go down uh, because all the efforts to try and essentially handle this problem by stimulus programs ignores the very simple fact that you can only redistribute wealth that's there, and we have destroyed wealth at a record race in the last uh, several days. So pardon me for sounding so pessimistic, but I regard this as a national catastrophe, which seems to be getting worse in the short run.
0: So when you wrote this piece a week ago and you started off with, with numbers, mm-hmm. uh, you said the, the world is in a, still, a full state of panic about the spread and incidence of COVID-19. The numbers as of, mm-hmm. I think, March 15th were total confirmed cases, 169,000 and change. Um, yeah. a, week, a week later, I think we're up to 360,000. I'm looking give at the give or take. I'm looking at the Hopkins yeah. uh, numbers as of yeah. you know Monday afternoon. Um, deaths. When you wrote the piece, it was 6,500. Now we're up to 15,488. 15, so a little more than and doubled on the way to to tripled. Um, I mean, those are huge jumps in just a week. Yeah, well, they're
1: they're, they're jumps. But remember, this is the way these things go. In the early periods when things aren't done, Do you get them. A lot of these deaths, remember, are driven by the Italian data, uh, which results from a decision not to use ventilators Uh, of these deaths. 13,000 are concentrated in the leading four countries with respect to the exposure. China is probably relatively settled. Iran seems to be relatively settled at this point. Spain is uncertain. Italy, I think, will probably start to peak. And so what you have to do is to say for the rest of the world where there have been 2,000 deaths, is it really worth engaging in this kind of massive situation uh, when, in fact, most of these deaths are to surprise attacks like the one in Seattle or to rather elderly populations, which you probably cannot save in any event. Uh, what you've done, in effect, is you've created material circumstances which are not going to stop these illnesses without creating others which may be more serious. Uh, what you're going to do is to create a massive set of dislocations of every established institution, including those which are necessary for the delivery of health care and mechanisms everywhere else. And so I cannot understand for the life of me why one simply wants to play the If you ask yourself, given the fact that people are already in a panic state, and I have many, many friends, elderly friends like me, i.e. over 70, that's the only definition, on the Upper West Side, who are self-quarantining, why do you need to put this stuff and shut everything else down when the vast number of people who get these diseases will do just fine? A thing to understand is people say, ah, there's underreporting of the virus. That is probably correct. But it's a good thing, not a bad thing for this analysis. The one hard number we have is the death numbers that Mm -hmm. start to take place. Uh, So, And we know, in effect, that these are all people that had to have been exposed uh, somewhat earlier. So suppose it turned out that we missed 90 percent of the people who were exposed. Probably that means that all 90 percent of those people had the virus um, and got better, without anybody knowing it, uh, so that the ratio of deaths to the ratio of cases is much lower than these things project. And so therefore, if you've already had a larger percentage of the population that's been exposed, um, it's going to be harder and harder to get that exponential growth. And even if you get it, the death rate doesn't look to be all that high. If you now basically say we're putting the deaths over the full number of cases that we don't know about, which may be 10 times the number of cases that we do know about, Uh, the percentage ratios start to drop. And that indicates, again, that we're sort of overstating this particular crisis. To somebody like myself, I say, you're almost 77 years of age. Okay, you start to take it a little bit easier, and you don't spend your time in a ball game or whatever. But for people in their 20s and 30s and so forth, the death rate is virtually zero. And we have essentially put them under lockdown. And the whole situation, as far as I can see, what you do is you see a curve, and it's moving exponentially up. But there's no reason to believe that it's going to continue to inflect upward. It will start to inflect down. And so by the time you're into this two weeks, the predictions that I will have is you may well have 50,000 people, which is a fairly substantial number, who have been deaths worldwide. But it's not like the 675,000 people who died in the United States of the Spanish flu or essentially the 20 million people worldwide who did so. And that flu didn't have this pattern. It was a situation where it hit with torrential force. People woke up in the morning, went to work in the afternoon, and died in the evening. We have not had any cases of that kind of severity in going on, and we're treating this thing as though it's a pandemic. The word pandemic only means we have something which is worldwide, but it's taken to meet of an unparalleled intensity and the intensity that we have at this particular point is not there and it's not confirmed in the data I mean what's so worried about it is that the you know the standard source that everybody's been using seems to be much more bulky than it has been, and uh, we don't seem to have the sort of they're just not updating the numbers in the way in which they really ought to be. The website seems to have turned buggy in some kind of a way.
0: Uh anyhow, uh, the, web, the website being the uh, the one provided by the uh, Center for Systems Science and Engineering at Johns Hopkins yeah. University. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's yeah. the one I have. It, it seems to be boggier. Yeah,
0: uh, I, I for what it's worth. And you can you'll probably or you may uh, after this wrote me in with all of your friends who have totally uh, freaked out over this. But I just see this fundamentally different from you. Um, I'm just looking at the numbers from last week. In New York alone, when you wrote the piece, 938 cases in New York were now up to 11,000 or so, a little under 11,000. Six deaths, now 99 deaths. I mean, we're on an exponential growth curve. And you're right, these things peter out eventually, but they peter out in large part for the reasons they petered out in China and elsewhere. Um, both the government and private individuals radically change their day-to-day life in a way to slow or stop the spread of this disease. And I don't think these two things are unrelated either. I think that you see even where we were, as in the US, there's great credit um, that, that goes to, deservedly goes to people in their individual choices, right? So much social distancing is voluntary, but it's it's happened precisely because public officials have impressed and, and, and experts ha- outside of government have impressed upon the public, the real dire circumstances here. I mean, we are on an exponential growth curve that only slows because of the government response. Mm-hmm. And I think that to the extent that we're seeing a slow, a slowdown now, um, I think we should be celebrating the government response, not, not criticizing it. No, I mean, anybody can criticize it. Of course, not everything is perfect, but you know what I mean? I think that to the extent that our fortunes could, turn this week, and I don't know that they will. I think we're in for a pretty rough week. Um, I think that, that credit goes to the government for impressing upon the public how dire the circumstances are.
1: I think that's 100% incorrect. The uh, stuff is you have to disaggregate. Individual choice is fine. Um, I think they're a little bit extreme because I think the statements of the level of severity, I think, are overstated. Institutional response is fine. Uh, a government response, suppose it does do something. It doesn't have to do what it did. There are all sorts of lesser restrictions that it could have. You know, it could leave gyms open, for example. It could leave small restaurants open. It could tell people, yes, you can have people in, but you can only have them at half the number that you previously did. Uh, what we've done is we've gone to a complete extreme. And if you're, again, looking at the total number of deaths at 15,000, it's it's two ways to look at it. You could say 100 is 25, 25 times 4, or you could mm-hmm. say that it's 96 more. If you look at it the first way and then you multiply by 25 again, uh, you're going to be really way over there. I do not believe we will see another 25-fold increase in deaths in New York. They've already been largely contained to one area. The rest right. of the state seems to be completely untouched. We're talking about two hotspots in the United States, Seattle on the one hand and New York on the other. We have not seen any exponential growth in in deaths in California, Illinois. Um, virtually no other place have shown anything of that particular sort. And what happens when you have national sort of situations, you shut down San Diego. And maybe there's an exponential growth from one death of this particular stuff. Uh, but it seems to me that what you do is it's just a massive overreaction. There are only two places on the planet where I think, in fact, something really ought to be done. And I think in both of those cases, it's extreme. But in Illinois, a total lockdown on the basis of four deaths from coronavirus in Chicago. Do you think that's worth it, Aaron?
0: I, I do don't... think it's worth it. If I do think it's worth it. If a week from now, we're looking at not four, but 104. Um, I think that what we need right now, and I think what we're getting, thank goodness, is a national sort of break on social interaction to the extent possible, um, minimizing as much as we can, especially um, really gratuitous um for the customer not for the provider and we'll get back to that but gratuitous services like restaurants and bars and that sort of thing they're not, gratuitous. That, they're, not gratu- they're 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 not they're not necessities these, they're they're
1: what's necess- going to happen is look every one of these people they're going bankrupt well we'll get oh, I mean will no, 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 we'll get,
0: we'll get get back to that in a second but I just want to say if what it takes it's it's seizing the situation at four deaths and and you know 100 or 200 cases versus A week or two later, uh, you know, 60 deaths and 500 cases, and those are just the reported ones, while we're preserving time both for the medical system to ramp up and for the pharmaceutical system, both on the treatment and vaccine side to ramp up, I think that this is the key time where you do need to go above and beyond um, sort of the bare minimum protection. Would you you do this in the flu season? No, because for the flu season, we've been dealing with it for many, many years. We have an established infrastructure. It kills a lot of people, but it's not on the same sort of um, it's, same sort this, of, of growth curve that this is.
1: Well, you look at H one N one, which is on the same growth curve as this one, and it topped out at under twenty thousand people. Yeah, I mean, a, what you do if you assume this
0: is this is not H one N one though.
1: Well, that was also regarded as a very serious, untested virus. If you look at the descriptions at the time, they're identical to the ones that we see for the COVID virus today. Uh, What happens is the exponential models are always wrong uh, because what happens is, technically speaking, uh, when you immediately you start to have something which is really deadly— Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it spreads before it kills the people who have it. So the original AIDS period was highly intense. The moment you get the slightest bit of social distancing, what happens is the var- it, it spreads at a lower right Rate so that the iterations, instead of being every 12 hours, become every 24 or 48 hours. It's probably the case that the smaller dosage that gets transferred at that time, because there's less contact, and there's some pretty good reason to believe that given natural variation in the virus, those that go through are less severe because the ones that are really vigorous have killed people on average more rapidly, so they don't do it. So the mix of virus severity starts to go down. These are all generic features of all epidemics. They are not peculiar to the this one or to anyone else. So if you try to run the best models on this, the last thing you would come up with is the model that's driving everybody, which is the notion that there will be in the middle of July 10,000 cases a day uh, of this virus. Uh, And their prediction is you will only get it down to 5 million cases a day with all of this particular stuff. If you take the other model…
0: Well, uh, happened, a second, is, that, is that their mean case, or is that their worst case scenario?
1: Well, they had they had several cases. No, they, right. it was their mean case, and what they do is they gave their assumption, but the assumption was every person has 2.3 contacts. They didn't give a period for replication, but it was very low. And it's already the case that the first assumption that each person is going to give it to 2.3 people is clearly wrong, uh, even given the levels of voluntary association that one had. And so these curves, they start up and they, they look, but then they inflect and they start moving But So it turns out if you're wrong on this, and I think you are, what you're talking about is the loss of Tens of trillions of dollars of wealth, which will itself create all sorts of serious dislocations that will create all sorts of serious health issues. Amongst other things, we will not care to the normal kinds of patient loads that come through our system because we're fixated on this particular kind of issue. Um, As I said... Go to where it's hot, create certain kinds of separations, but the total massive shutdown is not what you need. If you wanted to run sporting events, by all means run them and then put up a sign, nobody over 70 allowed to attend. And then no, you put I- a warning out there. And my guess is that by just that one simple restriction, you probably get 90 percent of the benefit of what they're doing by this total shutdown.
0: Now, is there any real indication that this is actually going to go away in a hotter climate? Because I've seen that floated in a few places, and I've seen epidemiologists, the ones I follow in my own little informational silo, uh, shooting that down.
1: Well, look again. It has always been the case, and, and the explanation is, is you know perfectly simple. As the heat gets higher, uh, what it does is it injects more instability into the system, so it's more likely to lead to the decay and degeneration of the virus. Um, is this virus so different from every other one uh, that this is not going to happen? Well, I think the answer is there may well be differences in the rates at which these things will happen, uh, but certainly uh, it will have some effect on this thing. I don't think it's the dominant feature, I think this will peak um, long before we get to the summertime. The the Chinese virus, with and without all of this stuff, it did peak, you know, five weeks into this stuff in February, and I don't know exactly when you want to start this particular thing going, but I would say a perfectly good date would be, say, serviceable for these purposes would be March 1st, and so we're now beginning the third week of this, and my prediction is that we would probably start to see these things taking systematic downward turn as early April. The problem is you could wreck so many things in the interim that it's going to be very difficult to restore them. And there's nothing that a stimulus bill can do that can even begin to dent all of this stuff. It's a destruction of real wealth. And stimulus bills are only wealth money transfer situations. They allow people to pay past debts. They don't do a thing for future investments. And the, the fact that we really are putting our faith in a failed government revenue that didn't even work in 2008 indicates, I think, a level of delusional optimism, which I'm frightened, in fact, at this point to observe.
0: Now, in China, as you mentioned earlier, the China numbers we should always take with a grain of salt right because it 's a dictatorial yeah. regime uh, it's it 's uh, full of disinformation publicly and propaganda we can 't take it at face value, but if we 're going to point to china 's um, china 's success in 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 bending the curve back down, um, surely it 's not just the weather patterns it is the fact that China undertook really draconian. Uh, approaches to preventing people from interacting with one another while they tried to isolate the disease. I I
1: think that's overstated. My guess is they probably did lie. Uh, There probably were five times the number of death cases and maybe 20 times the number of exposures. Uh, But what is so clear is we know that even if that happens, the current rates are surprisingly low and that every other major city in China is now open for business in more or less the normal statement. Even if you look at Italy, it's not uniformly spread through throughout the country. It's been confined largely to to Lombardy and rather from going to other places. And and so what this suggests is that this thing is global, but the densities are completely different. And the Chinese experience suggests, and the Italian experience is now suggesting, uh, that when you hit the hot spots, it tends not to migrate very closely. So the thought that you have to put something into place in New York City, conceded for the sake of the argument, means that you have to do it in Buffalo, uh, seems to me to be crazy. And so what's happened is you're getting a lot of political stuff in which governors who flex their muscles do everything space-wide and there's no counter-indication that that these things ought not to take place at this point in time. So uh, you're talking about 15,000 deaths. Um, what What you have to do to conjure this thing up if you're going to assume that the American figures are good for the worst, why is that? You're going to assume that the number of world deaths that we're going to get, with the best thing uh, taking in place, if we would we say, would be 15 million deaths. I, just I
0: just don't believe.
1: I don't believe numbers like that are remotely possible.
0: I mean, I think that one of the instructive examples to keep an eye on is, you know, speaking of China, it's it's the lead story on CNN.com right now as we tape this on. On uh, the afternoon of March 23rd, the headline is Hong Kong appeared to have the coronavirus under control, then it let its guard down. And it's a count of how China at first seemed like a real success story in minimizing the spread of the virus. At the outset, there was only 150 cases reported at the start of March in a city of 7.5 million. And then as they let their foot off the brake and put their foot back on the gas pedal in terms of creating space for society to to get back to normal, the number of cases uh, turned back around what is of, the
1: number what is the total number
0: well i'm looking for the total numbers here i'm i just have the narrative in front of me it says the number of confirmed cases in hong kong has doubled in the past week many imported overseas they're putting in a their own version of a travel ban again to bar people from the territory well, think, among Other are, measures
1: are we talking 20 or are we talking 20000
0: well i don't know what it is but if it's an exponential curve i just i, I don't shrug this off the way you do i think it's a no, more serious not, thing it, to
1: take <laughs> Yeah. Hey, look. Any time you uh, viruses have always had the following cyclical effect. What you do is you take something and you put the restraints and the things, the incidence goes lower because the only virus that's around is essentially impotent, it doesn't do anything. And then as people relax, it turns out the rate of interaction increases and now uh, the percentage of stronger viruses that move back and forth, the population increase. So you can get these kinds of undulations. It doesn't mean that when you start to see an upturn, you don't do anything, uh, but you don't have to do a total shutdown. Essentially, what you do is you look at your most vulnerable populations, dealing with people over 70 and have modest restrictions everywhere else, there are so many permutations between what we have today and, and what might make more sense that we're not doing the marginal analysis. My view at this point is that self-segregation is probably doing 80% of the work and that the stuff on the public side is very much, 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 much less. And the cost of the last things is going to be just absolutely astronomical. So it's not a question of whether it's exponential, how long it lasts, and what's the exponent. If it's 1.001, it's going to increase very, very slowly, but sometimes it could be exponential. And if that exponent is less than 1, it means that the next period is going to be less serious than that. And all of these models essentially assume no change in the rate of propagation in the untested period in the unregulated case. And in the regulated case, they don't see the curve coming downward. They still see a peak coming in July, uh, but they still see it as half the size. So uh, they are basically saying we're stopping half the damage, which is a perfectly good political solution, because no matter what happens, um, these guys are always going to be able to self-justify themselves. But I, I don't believe that any of this at the level that we are seeing it, it, is going to be fully justified by the time this thing is done. So, I mean, if you look at Germany, you know, take another state, uh, and you take the same Johns Hopkins situation, it's got 27,000 cases and 116 deaths, at least on the charts of, that I'm staring at at this moment. Um, well, that's a very, very low penetration rate. And why is that? The explanation is the Germans who got it got it in Italy, and they were skiers. So they're coming home, and they probably pass a little bit and on, uh, but the recovery rate amongst the 25 year olds from this stuff is about 99.9 percent. And so they have a different population mix and a completely different ratio. And I think that it's important to understand all of these things uh, when we start to do the extrapolation. Because if you extrapolate from the German numbers as opposed to the Italian numbers, where they have a far higher uh, situation, right? You know, 20 times higher death. Um, it Really creates things very, very different. And the Italian situation is completely non representative, given the fact that A, it's the age, and B, the lack of any treatment that was given to the people. Because under a national health care system, uh, what you always do is you have cues to ration. And when you have cues in a crisis, you don't have any reserve capacity to deal with people. So I again am gonna state it. I think this thing will peak out worldwide in terms of deaths at, you know, I think of maybe 75,000 people. The American totals would be about five percent of that. Or, what did I say? Fifty thousand deaths? Yeah. Well, no, that's that's too low. I I can't even multiply. At yeah, right point. now we're at about
0: 15,000 total 15, deaths. 15,000
1: deaths. And, and my guess is that we're probably between 5 and 10% to the total. Yeah. Uh, so it would be about 150,000 to 200,000 deaths is, is the best estimate. The American estimates are those numbers are small for a single state like California or Illinois. And I just do not see how they could get there. I did the calculations in the column that's coming out. And essentially... The current rates are, in terms of infection for the population, about 0.000 something or other, and deaths a little bit higher of the people who are infected. Uh, But you have to imagine an exponential growth in these places, even without rent intervention, which is simply startling. How you get from four people in Illinois Mm -hmm. in four months uh, to essentially Tens and tens of thousands of deaths, says our governor. And look, I'm not going to persuade him about anything. One of the things is that frightens me more than any other thing thing that bothers me about all of this is there's nobody in the health establishment except for one or two people who constantly get savaged on these things who are prepared to say that the standard model which doesn't make sufficient adjustments for these changes uh will work and you know i'm going to take a look now uh in my sober moment at the um situation with respect to what what um uh, the stock market, and yeah. you know, it's 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 going to get slaughtered again because yeah. there's just no reason for it to do well, and it's down 500 points. Yeah, you know, this is it's now down to basically where it was when Trump was elected. The whole gain is gone. This is you know from twenty nine thousand six to eighteen six, and I just don't see i don't see it reversing itself at all because if you keep this stuff up the stock market will go right down to 10,000 points at which point the level of social Situation: the massive bankruptcies, the foreclosures, the rent failures, the evictions, uh, the misvalue of defense. And what happens is, in the ex post world, you can't stop losses. All you can do is try to redistribute them, which creates
0: more losses on top of each other.
1: We are in on the financial stuff, on an absolute death spiral. Absolute before- death spiral.
0: Well, I, I'm more worried. I mean, right now, more, you know, more worried about the death spiral upward on the coronavirus. Well, I,
1: I think it's going to be trivial in comparison.
0: Well, let, OK, before we get to the cost of benefits, because I have some thoughts on that, just one final word, at least from me and see what you have to say about the the public health impacts. Um we keep talking about both the confirmed cases. I saw somebody, I think Ari Shulman, editor of the New Atlantis, tweeted. We ought to say not confirmed cases, but discovered cases, right? Because we know that the number is surely big, of actual cases is surely bigger, and as. As the number of confirmed cases increases, it's a mix of both the actual growth of the outbreak, but also just our better, our increasing ability to actually detect the outbreak where it's already been. Um, So we look at both numbers. We look at the confirmed number of cases. We also look at the death numbers. And it's true the death number is much more hard and fast. It's harder to fudge on, although I'm sure some people have died um, of coronavirus who we don't know yet died of coronavirus. Um,
1: Italy has just turned down
0: yeah um
1: I'm um, just you hear what I said we, new numbers it, are up for Italy the,
0: the numbers 6, that, yeah the numbers well the numbers that Italy has re, have reported reflects a turning down I mean we'll see what it means in in the real world it but on it, sorry go ahead it means, it, it means it's turning down it They've means that it means that Italy is reporting that it's turning down yeah yeah. No, this is on deaths,
1: right? Yeah. And, I, and as I well, said to you, go ahead. What I was
0: going to say is we keep, we keep focusing on the death number for good reason. It's a more concrete number. But at the same time, we shouldn't forget all of the public health impacts short of death, um, the lives that are going to be shortened because of this, because of lung damage and other damage. And, of course, the economic response is going to impose its own costs on human life, and, and we shouldn't underplay that. But the death number is not the end-all, be-all of the cost of the outbreak itself there's real costs and speaking of costs, we can talk about you know self segregation um, have have older and more vulnerable populations remain socially distant while others make you know younger and healthier people make up their own minds. But the fact is that those people can be carriers that infect others, and in that respect, they strike me as a classic externality, right, a, cl- a case of external externalized costs that the government needs to intervene in in order to protect people from making decisions that are rational for themselves, narrowly construed, but not rational for society at large.
1: Well, let me just just again repeat. Uh, the fact that there are huge numbers of unreported cases out there only means that the conversion rate is lower than we thought, mm-hmm. which is a good news. If there are few yep. cases, it means that the virus sped slower than we thought. But what you cannot draw from this is the implication that there are more cases and more severe cases. And that's what the inferences that you're trying to draw on. So basically under all these situations, as I mentioned to you, uh, they just finally updated the numbers on. Italy, they were about five thousand four hundred and thirty-five two days ago, I believe. So it's now gone up by six hundred deaths in the last two days, which means three hundred a day, which is a rapid decline from what had happened before. And if you look at Spain, their deaths, have, well, they haven't been updated either; uh, they've not. The United Kingdom's at three thirty-five. It's now at sixteen thousand, and it will essentially, I think, in places on the list like France and England and so forth it will continue to go up more rapidly for a while uh, but uh, the number that doesn't matter, oddly enough, uh, for predicting the number of deaths is uh, the confirmed versus non-confirmed situations. It's either a weak disease with wide prevalence or a strong disease with narrow prevalence. But we now have a pretty good information that all of the exposures uh, that to this disease, which took place before, say, March 8th or 9th, um, mm-hmm. in this case, have manifested themselves in death, or cure. And that's
0: well, another— I- p- I, I, I totally, you're right. I, I don't disagree with this. That the 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 fact that there's probably a, a vast pool of unconfirmed, undiscovered cases means that the mortality rate is much much lower than is reported, and that's important. Um, I, I, I think that's exactly right. But the other the other costs in terms of public health health impacts, short of death, that's a that's still a huge cost. Not One for that the absolute Not for the that? For the flu, only in the very elderly population.
1: I mean, uh, the young people I know who've gotten this, who've reported it to me, you know, you check around, uh, they're ill for three days and they're back. So this is not something which creates really dangerous conditions except in that very top population. So if you're looking at the 90% of the population in the world under 60, let's say, who get this disease, their permanent conditions are very weak. If you're looking at the seventy or eighty population, they really have many other independent type uh, situations. But uh, if you look at these numbers, I mean on the latest one, the Italian situation suggests it's turning already. Um and that is remember. Italy is six about thirty five. It's about thirty five or forty percent of the total. Mm-hmm. Numbers of death reported, and the Chinese probably fraudulent is still the same ratio as before the top four companies countries are about eighty percent plus of these deaths, and the United States is i mean we'll see what its new number is today. Uh, it doesn't give it says no data in there. Wait, but my guess is that the data is probably around five hundred
0: yeah. now about the about the policy response and the yeah. economic impacts of this mm-hmm. um, I don't like phrasing it in terms of stimulus, right? Because the point isn't stimulus, in fact, it's the opposite. We're not trying to stimulate economic activity um, so much as we're trying it's it's economic relief, right? It's trying to help the people who are most directly impacted by the economic but by, by the policy response, uh, but least able to bear the burden. So whether it's in the form of direct cash payouts to, to poor to the to lower class and lower middle class people or whether it is some combination of government and private um, uh, deferral of mortgage payments for a month or two, um, just pushing people's mortgages back two months. That in and of itself would bring a lot of relief to the people who are most impacted by this. Um, it would only push out the, the um, you know, the, the full term of, of mortgages by two months over the course of, of a 30 year mortgage. Um, that strikes me as a relatively small burden to bear. <laughs> Um, And at the same time, I'm sure if that hasn't already made your head explode. uh, The fact that the Fed is doing everything it can to to provide liquidity and some kind of risk mitigation to the the bigger lenders in our country is going to help on that end. Why doesn't that soften the economic blow?
1: Because what will happen is in order to try to resist the problem of local failure, you create a much higher risk of system-wide failure if the Fed essentially gets wired up with so much debt that it's bought that it can no longer handle the situation. Remember, if you go back to the Great Depression of 1933 and so forth, what you did is you had a very similar problem. Uh, you had a situation in which you had banks which lend long and they have depositors who demand short. Uh, you start getting a bank run because people are going to say, well, the banks aren't taking in any money now because they have this moratorium. It may only be two weeks. It's been imposed by the federal government. Could it be imposed again? You start getting a run on banks, which is one of the possible consequences for this. There is no reserves left in this system but hyperinflation in order to deal with the question. So again, I'm not saying that you don't want to do this, uh, but you don't want the Fed to do it. There are many banks in the United States and let them each figure out the policy of what they're going to do. There are many landlords in the United States and they're going to have to figure it out this is at least in an individual case a standard issue uh, which is when you start seeing a debtor in arrears uh, you always have the question to try to plow the boom on this particular person and throw them out on the street or to sort of work out a modification to extend it now normally you throw people out on the street if times are good and you think they're just bad clients in this particular case you throw people out on the street you don't have a paying tenant anymore and you are not going to be able to get anybody in who's going to be able to be any better. So if you just keep the government out of this thing and say to individual banks, you should really consider a renegotiation and an extension of the loan, um, that may be better. And, you know, Adam, you may be wrong as to how it's done. What but- you suggested to do is, you know, just defer everything for two months. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somebody else is say, no, what we do is we will not defer it for two months. We will essentially extend the loan period by another six months and reduce the interest payments. And so forth, and, and do it out longer so as to have a better cash flow for us to avoid the breakdown. And that's the risk of planning this from the center. They'll come up with a scheme which looks good until you take into account its correlative cost. Um, no bank is gonna be foolish enough to try to foreclose on everybody because people are going to be late with respect to their mortgages. I can assure you of that. And then the issue is: are these banks better able to manage their own portfolios, or is it gonna be the Fed? When at the Fed, rents, you are taking a very serious risk of, a, of the problem associated with the mismatch of the maturities. Uh, if the banks essentially don't get the money in uh, from their mortgages, the customers are going to be very nervous. You start getting a run on the bank, and the only way you'll solve that is through a hyperinflation, at which point everybody's portfolio is ruined. So I'm not in favor of saying don't do anything. But I'm certainly very much opposed to trying to do this stuff from the center. It's all the stuff from the center that got us into this thing to begin with. Um, and uh, if you diffuse the information, you become a Hayekian and then let these people try to work it out. It does not make sense for a bank to repeat, to throw everybody out on the street. It does not make sense for landlords to throw everybody out. Um The crisis is there. They will figure out a way to share the burdens. If you want to give modest financial relief to very, very poor people, maybe you can do that. But I'm afraid that when you try and work this out, it's not going to happen. You have to reinflate the economy by relaxing at least to some degree the restrictions in place. And if we decide that we're going to keep these things in place at the level that they have them now, uh, then we're doomed. Well, now, there's nothing that's going to work.
0: Doom I, I, I do agree that there needs to be some sort of guidance of how, how this policy is supposed to end. Again, my friend Ari Shulman, who edits The New Atlantis, had a great essay online uh, over the weekend about the need for some sort of government explanation of what success looks like and where we can begin to wind down You know the, the, the sort of nationwide or seemingly nationwide movement towards social distancing, because people can't do this forever. But in the meantime, right now on this this point about foreclosures and eviction or evictions and so on i like the way you put it you know throwing people out on the street that's exactly the problem we're trying to avoid we don't want people on the streets right we don't want we want people in place and not moving and of course everything i'm going to say is downstream of the fact that i think the policy response was good i know you disagree and so you'll disagree with everything i'm going to say okay. But but I'll just say it's good to keep the people in their homes. Yes, the banks will have an incentive for not racing to foreclose, and yes, landlords will have an incentive to not evict everybody because they were, they're not going to have people to to fill those spaces anyway. Um, but they'll they, they, they'll foreclose at least on some. They'll evict at least on some. And each one of those decisions is going to carry with it public health externalities as you bring those people out of their homes and either into shared housing, public housing, or something else. We just don't want that right now. And even from the perspective of the either the the, the person who has the mortgage or the person who's paying rent, they might understand that in the abstract, their landlord can't evict everybody or their bank can't foreclose the mortgage on everybody. But in any in any one person's case they're not inclined to necessarily roll the dice maybe they will maybe they won't the first thing they'll probably do is try to scrounge up some money first and go back into the economy which again is what we definitely do what you disagree but but what i think we do not want the people to be doing right now and so i think that if i'm right that the public health response has been warranted, then the way to mitigate the cost is through some sort of a holiday for a couple of months to give people some space, while preserving for the banks and the lenders of of second-last resort the liquidity and stability that we can through the Federal Reserve. Um, But I know you disagree. I'm talking until I'm blue in the face now.
1: (laughs) No, I think we should probably stop because I do think that the risk is, as you try to stop local risk, the risk of systemic losses get larger. And that's the real problem. I actually have to go into another phone call, uh, alas, alack, but this has always been a a lot of frustrating fun. I hope we have a (laughs) happier topic to talk about soon.
0: Let's hope so. We'll talk about your new book, which is sitting on my shelf. Um, (laughs) Widely unread. (laughs) (laughs) But... um. But until then, um, thanks as always to our audience for joining us. Please join us again uh, for the next episode of my friend Richard Epstein and I on reasonable disagreements. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.